when I look at an athlete, the way I see an athlete, it's how they see themselves, how they feel about themselves, where they are in their lives. That's going to show up on the track way more than the training, right? The training is only going to be in line with the athlete when those other places are in check. You can maybe fake it and get by for a little while, but ultimately those things are going to reveal themselves more than the workouts and the mileage, whatever, any of that stuff. And so how people are feeling is to me the first part that you have to tackle as an athlete. Then you can nerd out on workouts. But to get that order wrong, I think is you're going to be dumbfounded at the lack of results. That's Mike Smith. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, for the second straight episode, I've got another fellow Central Massachusetts native joining me on the podcast. And this time, it's Mike Smith. Mike is the director of cross country and track and field at Northern Arizona University, where his men's cross country team won three straight national titles from 2016 through 2018. And last fall, they finished runner up to BYU. His women's squad qualified for nationals last fall for the first time since 2008, finishing 14th. And prior to his time at NAU, Mike coached at Georgetown, and in his coaching career, he's guided numerous athletes to all conference honors, all American awards, and national titles. He also coaches a handful of pros and still leads the team-run Flagstaff group workouts on Tuesday nights in Flag. I've been following Mike's career since the mid-1990s when we were both running as high schoolers in small-town central Massachusetts. This is a conversation about the path Mike's followed to get where he is today and who and what have influenced him along the way. It's also a conversation about his approach to coaching, running, competition, and life that I personally took a lot away from, and I know you will too. We squeezed as much as we could into this 90-minute episode, and my only regret is that we couldn't have gone twice as long. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Coach Mike Smith. Mike Smith, you are someone whose career I have followed since the mid to late 1990s when you were at Wachusett Regional High School, and I have been admiring you ever since. It is a real honor to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, those are kind words, and uh, yeah, appreciate the invitation. And uh, you're someone I'll, I'll say as well, a career I followed uh, from, our, from our home uh, equally. So thank you. You were two years ahead of me in high school. You ran at Wachusett Regional, which I would say is probably one of the most underrated, underappreciated high school programs in the entire country when you think about who's come through there over the years. So I'd love to just start by geeking out on Central Mass stuff for right now. What was your favorite race in high school when you were coming up? Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning Wachusett, it's uh, it an awesome place to grow up, awesome place to go to school. Uh, my mom still still lives back there and love to get back. Um, it was an awesome introduction into into the sport. And I was really fortunate to join a program uh, when I was in high school that had, yeah, had, you know, I think up to this point, it's like, you know, two, two head cross country coaches over 70 years. And so big tradition. And um, yeah, it's it's 
wherever I go, you know, those roots are close to me. So, um, yeah, we had a, we had a little invitational called the Wachusett Invitational, which was, uh, yeah, it's always fun running, running at your high school. That was, I think a blast. Um, yeah, running on our home course. Um, yeah, that may be hard to pick a race, but all those, all those back then were, were good memories. I love that race. I actually won that my senior year, the small schools division. And what I remember about it, it was kind of pre-district meet. So there was obviously a lot of excitement around districts because that's where you qualified for states right. and that's where things shook out. But Wachusett invite, at least in central mass, and that was the one most people got ex- most excited about because everyone came in. There were small and large school divisions. It was a pretty intimate environment fairly fast course. I believe it was like 2.4 miles or something weird like that on the roads. And I just remember, I mean, I only ran cross country my, my last two years, but that was also the one that I looked most forward to as well. Maybe even more so than districts and States. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? It's kind of funny. It's a 2.4 mile road race, but no one ever asked those questions back then. It was (laughs) good to go. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. And that was the original course they ran like starting in the 1950s or something like that. And so we just, you know, you just kept, kept going with it. But I love thinking of running back at that time, you know, kind of just before the internet took over and because your world was just, just so small, it was like, mm-hmm. you're, you know, the whole, the whole universe was just racing those, uh, yeah, central mass names and eventually people in your state, but that was it. California was like another galaxy and it was just as big as the towns around you, you know? Well, and you had to wait for the newspaper to come out the next day to see how people were doing in their dual meets. I remember, and I eventually worked at the Worcester Telegram and Gazette putting together that box score page, but that would be the first thing I would do every morning is I'd pick up the newspaper and I would see what other schools did in their dual meets, who was running fast, because you couldn't just pop online and get the results instantly like you can now. But I, I remember that very vividly, like running out to the driveway and like ripping the paper out of the bag so I could see how fast people ran on Tuesday afternoon. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, and that, I, I, I tell the kids I coach now about stuff like that and they, they think I, you know, grew up in the 1800s, but it's, <laughs> it's really like not that, not that long ago. Same with waiting for track and field news to come out and, mm-hmm. you know, to look at the, look at the list, like, you know, a, a race in Europe, you know, you might not hear about it for weeks and just a different, different era. But certainly I think one of the big things that came out of that time was just teaching people to, to compete and, and not so much this fixation on time because it was just about racing the people around you and figuring out, you know, how to, how to finish first and, and not, uh, it wasn't so focused on time. And now I see that as the, yeah, just a, a much different relationship with it, with high school kids today. Is that something with your own kids? I mean, you're coaching collegiately now in Northern Arizona that you have to talk to them about because it's just as readily available for them too. And I imagine it can be paralyzing if not used productively. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. It's a, it's a virus. It's just this fixation on time. And, uh, with that, it's losing the relationship with competing. And so, uh, really easy to come out of high school and have your evaluation be on how your high school career went with what your PRs were, but you're going to get to college and, um, you can be a really good runner and not, <laughs> not finish first, uh, in a college race. And, or, you know, you could be in these situations that, um, are have nothing to do with time. And if you didn't learn how to compete, you, you can all of a sudden find yourself in a really challenging, challenging place. So we work on that right away, but we also look for high school athletes that, uh, yeah, have good relationship with competing. And it's not just, not just so much about time. 
I want to go back to your time at Wachusett. You mentioned the tradition there. Brian Wallace was your coach. I believe he's still coaching there. How much did that impress upon you as a young athlete, the importance of team and culture and camaraderie? And how have you taken that with you into your current role as coach at Northern Arizona University? Man, Mario, I don't, I never get to talk about this stuff. So you're, uh, yeah, this is really fun for me. I, I, this is, it's so tied to what I do today because these are the, this kind of foundational pieces and what I value and how I try to work with young people. Uh, you know, it, those were the early days of just me understanding, you know, it, yeah, understanding people and, and what it meant to be a member of a team. And, um, man, the sport across country, there's maybe no, no greater in your face example of, of that. And so, yeah, those are the really early pieces when you're, when you're doing it at the time and you may not understand it and it feels like it's about, yeah, the, the races themselves, but really it's just, just the start of uh, understanding people. And, um, yeah, that culture was, was deep. And, uh, Brian Wallace was the, was the beginning for me. He was a guy who was by no means a sports scientist, but, uh, maybe similar to, a you know, to a Frank Gagliano, these just, super passionate, uh, people with huge hearts and that ultimately supersedes anything in, in, in coaching. And so, you know, he, he was just an old grizzled New Englander who would get in your face and have spit in his beard, holding a Dunkin' Donuts cup and just be, you know, spouting off a bunch of stuff. But man, he, uh, he made you believe. And when I, when I came into high school, we were a public regional high school. So a bunch of you know, our high schools made up of five small towns and, Really similar to you know a lot of schools, uh, a lot of schools back there. But we 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 had a rivalry with a private high school, St. John's. Um, you probably remember remember those guys. I do remember and, those uh, guys. I actually went there my freshman year and then transferred out. This oh, was before I even started running. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so the, you know, I I came from yeah a regional public high school, and you know the arch nemesis is this uh, yeah the private school, and I. I remember in middle school being like, you know, a friend of mine was going to go to St. John's and asking my mom about that. And she's like, no, <laughs> you got to pay a lot of money to go there. You're going to go to the high school that doesn't, doesn't cost any money. And so uh, right away, I realized those were those were different guys than me. And, uh, you know, it, it, um, there was this deep rivalry that uh, I, I just embraced. And the cool thing about having to figure out how to get things done as a team was it just really relied on yeah really relied on a group of guys that you know I went to high school with that weren't the guys I hung out with maybe on like the weekends but man when we you know three o'clock came and we met in the locker room it, those were my those were those were my my closest friends and my brothers and it was like that straight through and uh you know everything was shaped around team and and and, and everything when i say everything shaped around team it was mostly shaped around trying to beat that one school so uh but it was a great foundation to to the power and the accountability that um thinking about things greater than yourself can you know how it can take everybody with you it's a sweeping wave how do you impress that upon your athletes now yeah, they, you know, they, they come to us from so many different backgrounds and experiences and some come from really strong team structures and others come and they've been the only guy at their, at their school or, or coming from a place that, you know, that doesn't have a strong team. You know, we have young women that just train with the, the men's team and yeah, so they come to us in all, all different ways and what we try to find in common is um, their why and their purpose and it has to be about the, the greater, 
the greater group. And what we try to impress upon them, if they are patient, is that they're they're actually going to get everything they want individually out of this um, by that pursuit of team. It's just like talking about competing. If you learn to compete really well, um, you're going to leave you're going to leave with great PRs. They're going to come with, they're going to come along the way with that, but it's actually through, uh, through competing. I was, I was, uh, talking to Chris Zelensky about something a few weeks ago and I asked him about that American record 10 K and he answered exactly like I thought. He just said, yeah, I, I was just trying to race the race that night. I, you know, I looked at the time with, with the hundred to go. And I think that's just, a you know, that really parallels, you know, I think the, the nature of team as well, that we're going to, we're going to do everything uh, that we do for the nature of the, uh, the greater good of the group. And in the end, we're going to get everything that you want individually through that. Do you find it tough to get younger athletes to buy into that approach if it's not something that they previously had experience with in their high school program? Most of them will say with words that they understand. Uh, they'll. It's an easy thing to say to agree to in a recruiting process, or even when you mm-hmm. when you get there, it's an easy thing to agree to when everything is clicking and you're fit and um, you know everything is in sync. But much harder uh, when, yeah, in times of challenge or when, for the first time in your life, it, you're not in the spotlight. But that also is something that can be learned. So we're patient with that, but. Um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely easier said than done, and I think college is really when that is uh, in your face. But if that's one of the things that you you weren't really good at when you entered sport and you exit sport really good at, it's going to pay off when you have a family or you know you're into your career and things like that. So we look at that as you know one of the you know whole reasons they're here in the first place is to learn that process, but. When you've only known the spotlight and you've always been the guy, um, yeah, it's it, it it takes some reflection and maybe some uh, recalibrating when that's not the case. And certainly when you're in a program where, you know, every year you're going to get, you know, more fast guys coming mm-hmm. in and things like that, it, it takes some time to learn. I appreciate that approach. I'd love to go back to your beginnings as an athlete. How did you get your start in the sport of running? Yeah, I um, uh, my mom was a PE teacher, and so my sister and I we played lots of tried lots of sports, and um, I was I was I was probably a pretty uh, mediocre to average athlete that could kind of do a lot of things, and none of them super exceptional. But um, something happened when I, you know, I I don't know, running. There was something to it that I think just just clicked well with me and my personality, and you know, I I. I noticed the farther I ran that the more that I could kind of tap into that. And yeah, I, I ultimately, and, uh, you know, found that, that I was going to a high school that had a great cross country and track program and, um, you know, had, had some awesome leaders when I was a you know younger athlete there and got to move through that program and ultimately running in college. But, um, you know, in the end it was, yeah, like I, like I initially said about, where I think Wachusett made an imprint on me. It wasn't, I, I ultimately didn't, you know, there wasn't any, you know, huge accolades or anything for my running, but uh, uh, the greatest on, you know, course and understanding humans that, that you could possibly ever receive. So 
Come on, man. TNG Super Team All-Star. That's one of the greatest accolades you can have as an athlete. <laughs> That's true. I thought about telling you, Mario, when you said you're interviewing Nate, I was like, you tell Nate Jenkins I know the name of every one of his high school teammates because that was one of the teams that we we feared. And we didn't we didn't have to race them because it was a different division. But man, all those names back then are are legendary. Well, it's funny you say that because I always considered Narragansett to be the small school version of Wachusett. You were a bigger regional high school. They were a smaller regional high school, but you had very similar programs uh, and similar types of dominance in your respective divisions. So it, it's kind of funny to hear you saying that because I, I always thought that when I was coming up myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, all those names back then, I, it's amazing how they stick with you, you know, through all this time. But, you know, I, I was at the trials uh, in November 2007 where Nate had that incredible race. And, um, I dropped out of that race and I just had such pride. I like, I'm so proud that someone from where we were from was, you know, was competing like that. And it's funny, you know, without, you know, I, I, I followed you forever and, and Nate and, you know, we probably all don't know each other super well, but you know, in some ways you feel like, you know, these people, you know, well the names. you know where they're from. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. absolutely. I, I love hearing you say that because I feel that way often. And I've felt that way for as long as I've been involved in the sport, whether it's what you're doing now as a coach, what Nate did as an athlete to see someone like uh, John Green, who I've never met. I've never talked to. I know you have um, a little bit yeah. of history with him because he was at Georgetown coaching mm -hmm. Molly Seidel to the Olympic team. Um, Watch you grad. Colin Benny was like top 10 at the Absolutely. trials in yeah. Atlanta right. not too long ago. And, and I just think of all these different people, Tim Ritchie, uh, U S marathon champion yeah. just a couple of years ago from Worcester Doherty high school. And yeah, there's something about that. Central Massachusetts is not a big place, but when, especially in running, you see these people coming out and doing some pretty incredible things. Even if you don't know them that well, it does fill you with a lot of pride. Oh, At least sure. it does. It does for me. Uh, and I, I love telling people when I hear them say like, Oh, you know, Mike Smith, Coach national champions at Georgetown, Northern Arizona. Coach Galen Rupp to the Olympic team. I'm like, yeah, he's from Princeton, Massachusetts. Let me tell you about mm. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I. That, that's uh, yeah. Home is always uh, yeah place where that, that I take with me forever. But the you know the people where I'm from too, are doing things they are in the sport. You know, I feel like we're we're our own our own team in this big big wide world of uh, athletics. You mentioned your personality as a kid just sort of fit with running, and that's something that you've stuck with over the last several decades. How would you describe your personality in general, but specifically when you were younger? I get it a lot more now um, because I work with other people's kids for, for, for a living. Um, but I was, I was raised by a, a single mom, and my dad wasn't around, and so I was I – was, I was angsty and I, uh, I could give my mom a hard time. And so I, I think it was, a, a way to, you know, distance running was just this way to sort of work through some of that, you know, those just the teenage brooding that I think, uh, yeah, young, young men can, can feel and, uh, lived in a real rural area and loved to be outside. And so, I think I can, I just remember, you know, with the, with distance running, it was not wanting to turn around and just wanted to go farther. And, um, later on in life, when I would extend the distances I ran and 
um, move to a place that had trails and mountains and run with people that would run really, really far. I, I could just, I could tap into being 15 or 16 again. And, um, there was something that just synced well with that. And I, I can sometimes, uh, I'll recruit athletes or, or coach athletes, or I can feel that in them as well. And I can remember that. And it's, uh, they're scratching this itch almost, uh, that just lines so well with where they are personally and the, and the sport. And, um, I don't really like the phrase that what you get, what you put in, you get out. I'm not sure. I think that sounds really good. And, but I think it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty cliche and, and may not always apply to what we do, but, um, I, I believed at that time that it was that simple that I could just work really hard and, and have success and, and beat people. And so up to that point, I think that's what, that's what got me hooked. Did you have a competitive streak as a young kid? Yeah, absolutely. My mom was, my mom, <laughs> my mom was really competitive. And so whatever we played growing up, it was, yeah, it just, <laughs> it took me a long time to beat my mom in basketball in the driveway. And, um, I remember like, like playing against her as hard as I possibly could. And I, uh, yeah, I just, you just compete, compete, compete. And I, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. I I think you can get pretty far in this thing without actually loving competition and you can be sort of disguised in this, but ultimately what sorts people out in the end is that probably that relationship with competition. When did you first start tasting some success as an athlete? Yeah, we were trying to beat St. John's and dual meets and, you know, like, uh, yeah, I remember it's so, it's so ridiculous. Right. But like, I remember breaking 10 minutes in the two mile, you know, like, and thinking that was like, man, it's my, the time had a nine in front of it and that, you know, being like, I don't even know. Oh yeah, I know that feeling. Things, you know, things like that. It's just these little, you know. But again, where we're from, that stuff was, that stuff was a, that was a, you know, that was a big deal. And um, you know, yeah, breaking four thirty in the mile, that was a big deal. And I, you know, just these little things that probably, even back then, you know, on a grander scale, were nothing. And certainly now, or you know, you can chuckle about, but, um, again, yeah, when your world is only as big as just this little, little, you know, metro area, it's, yeah, that was, that was big stuff. And so, you know, those were the little breadcrumbs that you keep following and you have a role to fill with it, with the team. And, um, you know, that was the stuff that just kind of, kind of got me going. At what point of your high school career did you know that you wanted to continue running competitively? I remember we uh, went out to Franklin Park once um, and there were a bunch of college teams practicing out there. And I just remember watching these guys that look like men. It's funny. I coach college kids. I coach now look like like kids. And I remember, you know, being 15 and 16, you know, seeing these college guys and dudes had beards and like, man, these these guys are you know, you could do this at the college level and all the only colleges I really knew were back, you know, in New England. I mean, the, you know, Holy Cross to me was like as good as it got. And, uh, you know, like it was, you know, these New England schools and, you know, I, I remember I had a teammate, um, at Wachusett and she had an older brother who ran at uh, university of Maine. And I was like, wow, that's man, that's out of state. That's, you know, that's big time. That's yeah. big time. And, and, and uh, 
you know, or like back in the day, like old uh, 90s UMass basketball was a big thing, Marcus Camby and stuff. And oh, so, yeah. like, Calipari, Lou Rowe, yeah, that yeah, whole yeah. squad. That was big Marcus Camby yeah, exactly. fan. Right. So I was like, man, what, man I, maybe I can go run a UMass. And uh, anyway, so I just thinking that, um, yeah, thinking like that was like the, the big time. I mean, it, it was, you know, I'll go run at UMass and that'll be anyway. So just early on thinking, just finding out that running in college was a possibility. And, um, you know, and then from there it was, okay, what, you know, what, what would it, <laughs> yeah. What would it take to run in college? And, yeah, going going from there. But I, I look back on even just what I knew back then. And I, I when I talk to high school kids now and their moms and dads and they navigate that process, I try to always remember I didn't know anything. My mom didn't know anything. We were just, you know, I just I you know, so I just try to tap into that because I think it's easy to think that people have this figured out and you know, that that process is certainly a wild one. You ended up going to James Madison right out of school. Can you tell me what was behind that decision and how you ended up there? It was this simple. Uh, me and my buddy, uh, Wachusa guy, uh, and our two moms jumped in a car and we drove around and visited colleges uh, for a week in the summer of uh, between junior and senior high school. And he wanted to play soccer in college and I wanted to run cross country in college. And so... We just stopped at a bunch of different schools down the way. And he, one of the schools on his list I'd never heard of was called James Madison. And he wanted to talk to the soccer coach. So I figured while we're at it, run inside and see if the cross country coach is there. And, uh, yeah, it was a school down in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And, um, you know, ultimately that would be where I'd, where I'd go to college. Did you know what you wanted to study or did you know that you just wanted to run in a collegiate program? Yeah, at that time, um, at that time, definitely knew I just wanted to run, and I, I my relationship with academics would would kind of uh, be fledging at points of just lack of interest or just uncertainty in what I wanted to do, and um, but yeah, and so I, I had a good baseline was I I knew I wanted to run, and I liked to read books, and so uh, yeah, majored in English and <laughs> ran cross country and track, so. At 18 years old, that was a good start for me. What was that transition like for you, leaving small town Massachusetts and going to Virginia, a place that you hadn't spent any real time? Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, you have to step out of where you are to see where you are, whether, you know, that's, a, you know, your geographic location or it's your identity in, in lots of ways. I, I, think, um, I think that was the first take of like, well, where I'm from is a really specific place and this isn't how people talk and <laughs> dress and all these things in these other places. It was just being dropped into this, you know, this other world. Uh, James Madison at the time was a, a good cross country program that my freshman year, they finished ninth in the NCAA in cross country, but it wasn't a really well-known program. And it was a bunch of Virginia farm kids and it was really small town, you know, backwoods, um, you know, Southern high school kids that were, yeah, um, just some of the best guys I'd ever met in my life. And, um, I get goosebumps thinking about it, but they, uh, yeah, were just a fantastic way to have family away from family. And, uh, those, those, that initial period was just, was just phenomenal for me. What 
impact or influence did your experience there have on you from a cultural standpoint, um, similar to what you had talked about earlier during your time at, at Wachusett and how it's influenced your approach to building a team on the collegiate level now? Yeah, Mario, you, you're, you're asking the right questions. I, it's um, because this, a lot of my ways I see team and I know what's possible with team. They're not from the places people would expect. No one's heard of my high school and no one's heard of James Madison University. If I listed off the guys on that roster, no one would have heard of them. But um, that was kind of the point. They were, um, again, these, you know, um, yeah, these kids that were like 920 Virginia high school kids. Um, you know, they were. They, their only hope of doing something was to rally around team. And um, the coach there, Pat Henner, had been building this momentum um, and getting guys you know, behind them of what they're trying to do. And um, so sim- I, I could relate to that because of my high school and trying to beat this giant of this you know, s- school, this rivalry I had. And I, it was the same thing. It was just different colors and different names. But I, I, I didn't need the history. I could relate to it. And we, you know, they were trying to go up against the, the Goliaths and um, with a bunch of names that no one had ever heard of, but there's some, the sum of those parts together um, made it possible. And so I was, I was like, there was no one on the team from New England or from Massachusetts. And I had a Worcester mass accent and they, you know, they, it was, <laughs> but they brought me right in and um, I, you know, I was, I was part of it and, yeah, the way they loved each other and fought for each other, what that, how that translated uh, on the cross country course halfway through a ten k, uh, I'll never forget that. And that was just, it was how you fight for the people alongside you. It's it's beyond word. There's no language. There's nothing to say. It's what you do, and uh, it was completely selfless. Um, and uh, I. You know, those, those, those guys are, you know, in their, um, probably in their forties and scattered all over the country, but they are really tied to, uh, this school out in Arizona, uh, that they maybe don't even know about, but they, the guys I coach today are, are really tied to, um, that experience because it, it's the model I use and I remember, you know, very regularly. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by my friends at Soar Running. Soar is a UK-based men's running apparel brand whose stuff I've been wearing and enjoying for the past couple years. They have the lightest race singlet I've ever worn and other great pieces like the hot weather t-shirt, all weather jacket, elite speed shorts, and more. One of the things I love about this brand is that all they do is running. Soar is committed to creating apparel that matches your commitment, whether you're striving for a sub four minute mile or a sub 10 minute mile. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast, that's you, the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash the morning shakeout. That's S O A R running.com slash the morning shakeout and enter the prize draw. That's it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, 
Soar is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at SoarRunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT, that's one word, all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. That is a great deal. Check them out at SoarRunning.com and follow them on Instagram at Soar underscore running. My thanks to Soar Running for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. You ended up transferring to Georgetown. What was behind that move? Yeah, so um, I, a big, big impetus for me going to, down to James Madison was uh, my coach, Pat Henner. Uh, and he got the opportunity to move from, he had built up JMU and got the chance to move up to a really established program of Georgetown University. Uh, just a couple hours away in Washington, D.C. And so, um, yeah, I, when he left, uh, he was really the reason I had gone to James Madison. And um, I was sort of in this place, this time between my my coach and my teammates. And, um, yeah, I, I, I replayed that lots of times in my head. But ultimately, uh, yeah, I decided to transfer to Georgetown. And, um, yeah, and spent the next three years there. And how did your time at Georgetown differ from the time you spent at James Madison prior to it? Georgetown was a program that was um, a place I couldn't have gotten recruited to out of high school. It was uh, yeah, one of the most decorated programs at that time and in the nation and a huge tradition on the on the men's side and um, I was all of a sudden on a team of guys that were, you know, 404 high school milers and, um, you know, guys who, you know, one foot locker or something like that. I mean, just these, you know, the, all the names that you would have read about and just, you know, totally different level than I had been just a few years earlier in high school. Um, and yeah, that was a, that was a big change for me coming from the guys I was running with at, at James Madison, and um, that that was a huge adjustment, um, and not an easy one for me. And and just uh, it was, I again, I was coming off a certain type of team in high school, a certain type of team at, at James Madison, and transferred in. You know, a big decision for my running, and you know, on paper it looked really good, um, but it was. Um, yeah, it, it was tough. And I think that it, that wasn't, that wasn't anyone's fault. It was just the, the, the circumstance and, and the, the situation and just the, um, yeah, just the way those people gelled at the time. But it, I think in, in, in terms of team culture, um, it's really important to see what works, but also what doesn't work. And, and whether that's on a team or an organization, um, in any kind of relationship, okay, here's what, when, it's, when, you know, something is functioning in a healthy way, this is what it feels like. This is what it looks like when it's not functioning in a healthy way. This is what it feels like. And this is what it looks like. And, um, yeah. And so that, but the opportunity always is like to help change something and help build something. And, and we had people that were on board for that. And, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily that it was a, it was a bad situation. It just was a really different one than what I was used to. And, um, and I was, it was a different type of athlete that I, you know, that I had been around. So I, I, it was a big adjustment for me. If you had to go back, would you do anything differently? 
you know, it, it ultimately, um, it's like, like anything. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I try to not play that game in my mind because there's so many, there's so many things that are, um, there's so many things that are, it's a second here or a second there, or, uh, you know, you know, a decision here or there. And, you know, I, my whole life is, uh, just the product of really minute circumstances. And, and so, you know, ultimately I, I, I'm so happy and I'm so fortunate and I have so much gratitude for my life that I wouldn't change it. But, um, I, I, I think, um, I think a great lesson for me in the time was just, you know, again, what looked a certain way on paper and what should be, what this should make, you know, you happy. This should be the best situation for an athlete. This is everything you'd imagine it to be. You're going to have all these resources, all these training partners and all these things, you know, to peel the layers back and to actually look at, you know, what you need for success. I think that was a great, a great takeaway from that. How were you thinking about your life direction when you were wrapping up your time at Georgetown? You're an All-American there in cross country, had pretty successful collegiate career, but you were a national champion. You weren't knocking it out of the park. Did you know you wanted to continue with the sport or were you looking at some other avenues at that point? Probably the process that had happened when I started running in high school that kind of, you know, built up all the way through college was I was, um, I was very outcome oriented. It was all about qualifying for something, all about running a certain time. It was, you know, it was all about this, uh, you know, these, the status I could achieve. And that was the way I, I, that was the way I created goals. And I, I neglected the, the pride that should have been emerging from a really vulnerable, beautiful process that I was taking on of just, um, yeah, just trying to be my best each day and, and structure a life around that and bring people, uh, you know, with me to also be at their best. And I wasn't, I wasn't reaping any of the joy from that. I wasn't, I wasn't taking all the good stuff that was right in front of me to just, yeah, to, it was all about, yeah, it was all about these outcome oriented, you know, once I could finally get here, then it's worth it. And you just can't, you can't stand on starting lines needing the race to validate everything that you're doing. And so after, you know, after lots of frustration in that in college, again, so thankful I went through that because I can smell that out in, in an athlete now in two seconds. And I totally relate to it. Uh, but, you know, I just was making so many mistakes of, um, you know, the way I was framing things. So this stuff was happening way before I'd, I'd go compete. And um, it's a way that I'm able to see it now. But geez, super frustrating at the time. What that led to was some, you know, some sporadic success we were seventh as a team in cross country um uh, my junior year and um yeah i i you know it never did on the you know never ran on the track like i imagined i i could but um again i i look back at that and realize shoot i you know i was doing a lot of that wrong and without without knowing it so i think what emerged at the time was just by the end i really needed a I really needed a big break. I needed to take a big step away from big step away from running, and um, yeah. And so I graduated from Georgetown, and um, and got to do some traveling immediately after college, and really just like for the first time since I'd started running, just you know, put that thing down and and just see who who was standing there outside of the sport. Was that a 
tough time for you to go through that experience? It was such a relieving time. Um, it was like, it, it really showed me how I'd been living with the sport, which was just that, you know, chasing, chasing these achievements. And that's just a hollow way to hold an identity. And, and, um, you know, it, it was proportionate to the relief I felt when I paused <laughs> was, you know, that was also the way I was treating myself and the way I was treating the sport and just, you know, it, it was not a, it was not a good thing. And, and yeah, I had, I had stalled some development personally as I had poured myself into the athlete. And that's, again, when I, when I work with young people, I'm on the lookout. I'm on the lookout for that. And in some of the ways that we're, we challenge them, they appear to have nothing to do with athletics, but they actually have everything to do with athletics. And I, I think that, um, at the time that was just, uh, that was just where I was. And so, you know, actually it wasn't a challenging time. It was such a relief. I, you know, when traveled around different places in the world and, you know, maybe went for a jog if I felt like it, but for once I just wasn't living under that, you know, that immense pressure I was putting on myself. How long did you stay away from it? Not long, not as long as I, I should have. And that was, um, again, out of, uh, you know, so much of identity tied to it. And so, um, you know, ultimately I, I probably needed to, you know, step away for, for a lot longer, but yeah, I, I, even that first year out of college, you know, um, kind of got back into some training and, and things like that. And, and, you know, oh, really saw like what I was feeling right at the end, which is, you know, you need to, we need to go do some other things and pursue some other stuff. And so I, um, I ended up teaching, uh, teaching school for a couple of years and, uh, in, in uh, inner city public DC, uh, elementary school, um, which was like, everything I needed to take my mind off of <laughs> distance running. It was great. Like, let me take care of all these other people and, you know, that are just focused on survival. So it was a wonderful relief. Did you have any connection at all to the sport at that time, other than maybe friends that you had made through it? Or were you just fully focused on working with those kids in the schools in DC? Yeah, I had, had uh, you know, I had friends, um, you know, that, that still ran. And, um, you know, my Georgetown uh, teammate, Chris Lukezik was running professionally. So kind of, you know, would keep tabs on, on things. I still lived in DC, so would follow the Georgetown team and, you know, friends with old teammates, things like that. But, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was just as a fan of the sport and, and not really anything more than that, you know, I, I, yeah, nothing, nothing more than that. And, but also just, I mean, that's one of the best things I think, um, you know, you could possibly have is in, in any involvement in this sport or another sport is to step outside of it, mm -hmm. see what we're really, what we're really talking about here, which is it's a sport. That's all it is. And then with that gratitude, drop back into it because you'll, that whole relationship will be completely different. And um, so at the time, that was just the, the blessing delivered to me, which was just to, to, to leave it and uh, ultimately later be able to jump back into it, but with a whole different perspective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been there myself in a different set of circumstances, but it wasn't until I allowed myself to take that time away that I could come back to it with that gratitude and appreciation that you talked about. And just a new, fresh perspective that was a lot healthier than it had been in the past. Yeah, change change takes a lot of time, but changing how you see something 
can be instantaneous. Just looking at the same thing you've seen over and over again, right? Just from a different perspective. I, I mean, it can change everything around you just like that. It's, you know, so we're recording this uh, in uh, April of 2020 and, um, you know, with this pandemic occurring. And, and it's my hope that in this really challenging time, that's one of the best things that can emerge, um, you know, for the athletes I coach is that I don't know when, but we're going to return to this thing. And I'm hoping that, um, yeah, what they're going to take from this is just to see it totally different. I've thought of that as well, not just in terms of the athletes that I work with or how I approach my work. And it's not to discount the severity of what's happening in the world, but I do look at it. I've been calling it the pandemic of possibility because Hmm. what other time in our life have we had this forced pause where everything just comes to a skidding halt and life isn't normal anymore and we're out of our normal routines and we're forced to step back and look at things with a wider lens and reevaluate what's important to us and how we've been doing things and ultimately how we want to move forward. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the conversation we need to have uh, way more than the woe is me of what we've lost. And, mm-hmm. and, um, I, and, that, and that's not to say that we haven't, you know, we haven't lost a lot and people haven't lost a lot, right. but, um, we gotta, we gotta as quickly as we can get over that and then reframe our conversation to, you know, what's possible from this. Back to your time teaching in inner city DC, you've stepped away from the sport of running. You're keeping some loose contact with friends and the Georgetown folks. What, did you take away from that time you spent teaching and how has it impacted the rest of your life? Just like, uh, when I was 18, I left Massachusetts and went down to school in Virginia and realized like, you know, not everyone wore, uh, Red Sox hats and walked around with Dunkin' Donuts and didn't use, you know, used AH instead of ER and um, this big like slap in the face of like, wow, I'm from this really, you know, niche little sliver of the world and here's this other niche sliver of the world. Um, right after college, you know, I worked in Russia for a summer and that was a big like hit in the face of what it means to be American and um, ultimately my time in DC was a great study in, in my race. And, uh, I had grown up mostly around white folks and, uh, I was working in a public school where I was the, I was the only white person and, um, and in a neighborhood that was, uh, almost entirely African-American. And that was a huge time to reflect on the privilege that came with my race. And that changed my entire, that changed my entire way I saw it for the, you know, the rest of my life. And, um, it was, uh, a, a huge, uh, reflection also on my privilege that I had been given in, um, my education as a young person and, uh, just the starting points for so many, for so many people. And I, the stuff that will always stay with me, uh, are those, those kids and that time, that school, Abram Simon Elementary on 4th and Mississippi Avenue in Anacostia, D.C. You can look up where that is. Um, it's it's not <laughs> – we're not on the same starting line, and we're holding people to the same accountability. And uh, so I think big efforts in public education when it comes to that 
um, particularly in um, in inner city public schools, is uh, yeah, is always going to be a high priority to me. And again, you know, spending all my time worrying about what my 10 KPR was to just at, uh, you know, I was doing that at 24, 25 years old to just, um, each day show up and, you know, be the most consistent thing in those kids' lives and, uh, have to pull it together and, you know, navigate that was, yep. It was everything I needed. And, uh, ultimately, you know, the gift of it is that it's never left me. So it's, it's still, you know, that experience is still with me. Is the perspective that you gained there something that you try and impress upon your athletes now if you feel that they need a shot of reality or that, you know, they're just not looking at things the right way? Yeah, it's um it's 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 hard I've learned it's hard to do because um, you know, it's so easy to frame everything as uh you know there's starving people in Haiti, so you know, you're tempo run today isn't that big a deal but um i think that's actually we got to be careful with that and and we have to let young people feel what they're feeling and see it how they're seeing it and and the truth is when you're pouring your heart into something um that is everything you know and i remember that um so it's somehow finding the balance of the permission to be disappointed and to be frustrated and to feel what you're feeling with the with the understanding of how this falls into everything that it's, it's not that you shouldn't feel disappointed when you don't make the Olympic team. It's, um, the gratitude that our crisis can be just that, that that's, I think that's like the sweet spot between the two things. And, um, yeah, because it's in words, they, you know, they all will say that, you know, they get it, that they don't have cancer and and things like that. Um, but that can also da- lead them down sometimes the wrong path of, of um, not feeling what they need to feel. The answer is always going to be to go through it. And so we have to let them go through it and acknowledge uh, what they're feeling with the perspective that, man, if this gets to be, <laughs> if this gets to be my, uh, my life's, uh, you know, great tragedy, then I'm already, I'm, I'm, I'm filthy rich. Well, I appreciate that perspective and thank you for sharing it. After your time teaching in DC, I know you got back into running for at least a little while and moved around a bit. I th- correct me if I'm wrong. I think you ended up in San Diego at some point running for the Moving Shoes team there and then you've been in and out of Flagstaff once or twice. Take me through next steps after your experience teaching in DC and where the path led you. Yeah, I actually, uh, I, I'd been out in San Diego before teaching, um, with, uh, my college teammate who's also a coach in the NCAA, Chris at UNC, Chris Miltenberg. Um, it was funny. I have a memory of us, uh, out in San Diego and he said, he said, I'm either going to go to medical school or I'm going to be a coach. And I was like, I was like, man, go to medical school because coaching that sounds terrible like you're gonna have to go to track meets every weekend you can be around all these track nerds the rest of your life i and i remember kind of like knocking coaching and it's uh it's funny that kind of ironic, yeah, yeah i ended up a coach but um yeah we're, we're done teaching um i i hadn't i hadn't run much in a couple of years and i um i thought you know it, 
I just finished a master's degree and I, the lease was up on my apartment in DC. And I, I thought, you know, I, I'm either going to go, go travel or I'm going to, maybe I should run a marathon. I've never run a marathon. I, I always liked doing longer runs and things like that. You know what? Maybe what if I just try to run a marathon, um, and I'll give it one shot and, you know, and then, uh, you know, can never just wonder, Oh, you know, if I, yeah, what I could have run for a marathon or something like that. And so ultimately decide, yep, yeah, I'll train and try to run one marathon and, uh, yeah. Thought, okay, if you're gonna do this one time, where could you go? And so I, you know, heard about this place, Flagstaff, Arizona. This is 2006. Um, and so, yeah, moved out to Flagstaff and thought, okay, stay here a couple months, use the altitude, run a marathon, and uh, and then I ended up staying in Flagstaff for six years. <laughs> I don't want to skip steps here, but you were also, again, correct me if I'm wrong, responsible for getting Rob Carr into ultra running. Oh man. Uh, yeah. When, so when I was training for Flagstaff always as people trainer, right? So when I, I get to town and I, uh, you know, we kind of found other guys my age that like weren't big superstars and just kind of like, all right, you guys need part-time jobs too. And so a bunch of my buddies back then we were training for road stuff. Um, and, uh, one of the guys, so I, I, I was, I was working with a, a physiologist, Jack Daniels, and he, I'll always remember it. He, he, we were talking about, I was talking about some long run I was going to do over the weekend. And he was like, oh man, you know, there's another guy in town that's doing similar training. Um, shoot, what's his name? He's, oh shoot. He's a, he's a Canadian pharmacist. I'll always remember the first time I ever heard about Rob Carr was Jack referencing this Canadian pharmacist. And, uh, so he gave me this guy's phone number and it's in my phone to this day as Canadian pharmacist. And that's from, you know, 15 years ago or something, but it was, um, yeah, this guy, you know, <laughs> Rob Carr, who was worked the night shift at the Walgreens pharmacy is from Canada. And he was a 1500 meter runner from Butler. And, um, yeah, over the years we, we ended up running, we, we ended up learning the trails together, uh, and, uh, yeah, he was just one of the many, many guys that spent lots of time training with and, um, yeah, a close friend and a wonderful, wonderful person. Were you doing some trail and ultra stuff yourself at the time? You know, back then at the time, like we didn't even necessarily call it that because, you know, we were living in Flagstaff and you, you, we have all these dirt roads and trails. And so that's just what we'd run on. And, uh, so it was, we just we just called it running, and <laughs> you know it was like you would never run on the road, and um, and and when I when it started to get weird was when, like, uh, yeah, like Rob would say, we need you know you need to yeah we would start it, it, the big click for me was like when all of a sudden I'd start carrying stuff, and I was like, wait a second, I'm not carrying anything. That's I'm not carrying something when I run. It's crossing the line it, of running. That's crossing the line. That's not, that's no longer running. That's like, I'm like orienteering or hiking or I'm not doing that. There's what, you know, like I need to carry poles. Like that's a different thing. I'm not into that. I mean, we would like make fun of that stuff. And then, but then when you are on your hands and knees, looking up at the top of the look from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, looking up and you have like a lemon lime power gel with you and 
uh, you're like, you know, seeing double and the Ravens are circling you, you start listening. <laughs> Did you and Rob end up running trans Rockies together or am I making that up? Yeah, there's a, so in Flagstaff, one of the, one of the big employers here is uh, WL Gore, their medical device division is located here in Flag and Gore, uh, also made Gore-Tex. They were one of the sponsors of a six-day uh, stage race through the Colorado mountains um, that was kind of created off this European-style stage racing. Um, it's called the Trans Rockies Run. And um, so all these all these guys in our running community, um, just our friends that would train here in Flag, would go do this six-day race, and you raced in teams. Because in the Alps, like where this stuff came from, it was like it was so sketchy that for safety purposes, you had to run with a partner. And so they took this kind of model and they created this thing. And so our friends in town would, would leave for a week in the summer and in these, in these as partners and go run these teams. And at the time there's a little prize money in it and stuff. And both Rob and I had kind of gotten disenchanted with the roads and we, um, <laughs> we, we, uh, yeah, we, we decided to, run this race together. And some of my best memories over the years, I think Rob and I ran it four years together, but, uh, some of my best memories are just the summers getting ready for that. And, um, the stuff we do to try to prepare for it. And just great, just great stuff. And I think kind of, you know, as you're taking me through all this and I just haven't thought about a lot of this in a while, but it, it just kind of frames like this, um, it was just such a huge change in my relationship with what I was doing. So instead of um, how fast I went and what my place was and my time and all this stuff, this era of my running was about who I was running with and where we were running. And none of it was about like the outcome. And that was the beautiful lesson that it was taught to me was, you know, Rob would pull up in his beat up Subaru and with a map and we'd get a coffee and we'd, pick some route and 50% of the time bonk and, you know, like, but it'd be in some amazing mountain pass or, you know, just that was the stuff we were figuring out. And none of it was about an outcome. It was just about the people I was with and where we were. And, you know, that's, I'm so lucky to have experienced that. Yeah. They're life experiences and they're very formative as you just described. And I mean, we haven't gotten into this, but I imagine have, shaped your perspective now in terms of how you work with your own athletes or maybe spot some of that in them and get them to turn a corner of their own. Yeah. As a coach and just with this, you know, you're, I spend so much time with them and I, I just try to really tap into the moments that I know it's really about. So when you're driving a van and the sound behind you is just like, them just laughing so hard, their ribs hurt. And, uh, or, you know, the, when, when they return from a long run and, you know, wordlessly just put a hand on each other's shoulder and look at each other or, you know, the goofy stuff that happens on the bus or in the airport. And they all think it's about what kind of athlete they can become. And they don't know quite yet that it, they won't even remember the damn races. It'll just be about that stuff. And I, I, I have such gratitude for it and I just try to tap into it. And when I can, I just try to illuminate that that's what this actually is about when they can appreciate it. 
when you see that sort of stuff, the laughing on the long runs, you know, their hand on one another after a workout, them being jovial on the bus, are those almost as important indicators for you that they're in the right place and they're going to have success um, as much as the workout that they did last Wednesday and the splits that they hit, or maybe even more of an indicator in some ways? Absolutely. I mean, we, I, I monitor that like I would the, you know, paces of the workout. I, I monitor that kind of level of tension and that kind of flow and that when they're going to race their best, that's how they're, that's how they're feeling. And, um, I, yeah, that's the stuff that I watch for. And we could, you know, I mean, everybody has glamorous training logs and, you know, unbelievable workouts and all that. And the mistake I think is thinking that that's it or (laughs) that's enough. And that's, you know, it's, it's the way that I, I don't even know another word for it, that energy, you know, feels in the group. That's always what you have to look for. And, you know, those are the ways you calibrate it no matter what. Hey, one more quick break to let you know that this episode is also brought to you by The Feed. The Feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. They have everything you need for hydration, fuel, recovery, and wellness. With brands like Morton, Goo, Honey Stinger, Human, Vital Proteins, Theragun, PowerDot, and many others, you can take your training to the next level. The Feed's wide selection of wellness products will help boost your immunity, keep you healthy, and improve your recovery time. They've even put together an Immunity Plus pack to help individuals boost their immunity during these uncertain times. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morningshakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morningshakeout. My thanks to The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Last bit on Rob. I want to go back to him for a second. Does any of the success that he's had in his ultra running career surprise you? Uh, zero of the success. There's no, you know, they're very, I, I don't really, I don't know if I've ever met anybody like Rob in, um, you know, when you ask about what ways someone's personality fits with an activity, um, he's, uh, he's very, very special uh, he's very, very precise, uh, such a planner, but he's also so, so tough. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen him in dark, <laughs> I've seen him in dark places and, um, I, you know, he, he's, he shook me, um, in so many, so many times just being alongside him for, uh, you know, some of that and just, um, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. I, it was a real joy. You know, we, we, our lives kind of changed at the same time. I, I got into college coaching and, um, you know, his ultra career took off. He like, I, I remember the first race he ran 50 miles and I did like laughing because I was like, that's uh way farther than you've ever run Rob. And then after that, him telling me, hey, man, the next one is double that distance and being like, okay, well, now this is just getting stupid. This is, <laughs> this is, just, getting, this is just getting ridiculous. And, um, 
And I, but also, you know, how he handled that and how he managed it, it was, um, you know, I, I just, I knew him so well that, that, that didn't surprise me. And, um, again, in my, you know, in my apartment, uh, you know, thousands of miles away watching these race results and just knowing that no one knew his name, but the world was about to know his name. And I think a really special thing about what he ended up doing over those years and to this day is he just brought so many other people into that journey. He, he really used, um, the success he was having for a much, um, yeah, for much more than himself. And, um, he's a, he's a special one. He's, uh, he's a special one. That's for sure. Those are great stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. I want to talk coaching and we've talked coaching throughout this conversation, but I want to ask you a little bit more directly about your trajectory. When did the idea first get planted in your head to pursue that path of coaching? You've mentioned how your mom was a teacher, you did some teaching yourself, and it seems very much to me that you come at your coaching practice very much from a teacher's standpoint. Totally. Like when Milt, my college teammate, was saying, I'm going to be a college coach. I just thought, like, I just thought how terrible that sounded because it was, I, I think, uh, yeah, one of the dangers in this thing is you can become so unbalanced with, it's just so easy to have this be, you know, the number of times I've sat through a dinner at some restaurant and the only thing that was talked about was, running or runners or I mean just the number of times in my life I've like stood up from a table and been like I can't get that time back like there's I you know I I think my initial thought of like coaching was like this is for people that I can't let go or can't leave this thing or like don't know what else to do I just didn't look at it like and then I taught school um and then I looked at it totally different, like, okay, this is just teaching. And, I, and this is just, you're just trying to move someone from point A to point B. The vehicle can be <laughs> history, it could be piano, it could be the 400 meters, it could be, you're just, it's just a vehicle. And I think I, as soon as I saw that, then all of a sudden it was like, okay, this is, this is a, this is different. And I got to, I got to work for years in a little room with a scientist. And I, again, I was an English major. I, I didn't have any background in sports science, but the way Jack Daniels framed the problem of how are we going to seek an adaptation? This is a problem. And this is, you know, everything was just problem solving. We could apply this stimulus, this stress, this stimulus. That was like a, a riddle, a puzzle to solve. And that, I think that just, that kind of combo was seen it like teaching. It just looked different to me. And I don't know, I, I, I can kind of tap into what I first thought college coaching was or coaching was. And now I can, I think I can see, you know, how that changed for me. What was the first coaching role that you ever held? We had a we had a um, a community club here in in town called uh, Team Altius at the time. It eventually became Team Run Flagstaff, and Jack was the head coach, and I was um, his assistant coach. And um, you know, we yeah, we we coached community members. Jack. Uh, coached professional athletes and international athletes that came to train at altitude. Um, and so I'd assist him with, uh, those duties. Um, yeah, I began working with, you know, uh, recreational runners and kids and, um, 
but I, in some ways was always, you know, kind of in this thing one way or the other, you know, between my running and, um, hanging out with a physiologist and in, in my, for my day job and things like that. And so, you know, it, it, it's, um, yeah, for anybody listening that, uh, doesn't have some background in coaching, I don't think <laughs> I'm an example of you don't, you know, you don't need that. You don't, you know, it, that wasn't necessarily the case for me, but I had some good, you know, kind of foundations and, and I had some good observation with like, you know, great teachers and great mentors and, um, you know, but it definitely wasn't like this clear, clear path for me. Yeah. Obviously having an understanding of physiology is important if you're going to coach athletes, but it's not the only thing that's important. Do you think the physiology side of things gets overemphasized when we start talking about coach education and how to get yourself on the right path? Yeah, because now, now I'm in the spot where like, I'll go to these clinics or I go do a talk or something like that. And I, um, I see it, but you know, people, I think people try to, uh, yeah, you know, people try to out talk each other and out science each other. And, um, you know, science should be the foundation of everything that we're doing. But, um, there's a whole lot of people with zero, uh, emotional intelligence, zero, uh, experience working with actual humans that can out jargon you and out research you. Um, and we, we kick their ass pretty regularly. And so, um, I, I just think that can be a danger where, you know, when you're insecure and not confident, you can overcompensate with a bunch of degrees or a bunch of, uh, you know, textbooks. And this is every day I go on in this work is way less about training and workouts, any of that. And it's, it's just people. That's all it is. It's just people. What were the next steps for you after team run Flagstaff and working with age groupers and people in the community. When did you start thinking about the possibility of stepping onto a college coaching staff, which is something that just a few years prior did not appeal to you at all? Yeah. So my good friend, Chris Miltenberg was, um, was coaching, um, and was having great success and, um, was really enjoying it. And I, I was just seeing the work he was doing is phenomenal. And, um, he would say, you know, things like, man, you should really try college coaching. I think you'd, you know, I think you'd love it. And, um, we would talk training and sometimes I'd, you know, bring Jack in and, you know, to talk, talk shop on some stuff. And, um, my college coach, Pat Henner was, uh, you know, a huge life influence, a huge mentor. And, um, Pat Henner is someone that has this pretty incredible coaching tree, there's a lot of coaches in the NCAA that are in coaching because of Pat and um, Chris Milnberg at you know was at Stanford and uh, now at UNC and my work at Georgetown and NAU. We all use Pat Henner's model. We all were you know Coach Bonzi at Georgetown. We those of us that you know um, were taught by Pat. We all, all like my work is is all Pat's formula. Um, and Milt would say the same thing and Pat. Um, would tell me, you know, man, you, I think you should really try college coaching. And I remember this one thing is a couple of years before I got into it, but there was a job at Cornell and Milton Pat had said, Hey man, you know, you should really apply for this job at Cornell. And this is how interested I was in college coaching. I was like, 
that I'm never moving to Ithaca, Ithaca New York. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, that's how, that, like, that's, that was my level of try. I was like, uh, yep, no, nope, never moving there. So no thanks. And, um, and I mean, who I, you know, I never would have probably give, been given the opportunity. And I, you know, Milk got the, Milk was coach at Georgetown. I got the, uh, I got a job offer to be the director at Stanford. That's a once in a lifetime move and um, huge, you know, at, at his age at the time, he was, I think, 30, 32 years old. And um, the, so the position at Georgetown opened up and Pat, you know, Pat called me and Pat took a bunch of heat for it because, you know, he basically was just calling a guy that had never been a college coach to come coach, a, you know, a pretty well-known division one team. He took a bunch of, <laughs> probably, you know, he took a, people were like, well, who, what are you doing? And, um, you know, but we navigated that, I think, pretty well. When you stepped into that position at Georgetown, did you feel out of place or in over your head at all? Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I was... Man, I, I I would like to go back and like just put my arm around that guy and just be like, this is just going to take time. And because I I was I, I was like I I was like confident in what I knew, and I I knew I you know Jack was a call away, and I I had Pat, and I like I was I was fine, but it, yeah, that insecurity of I remember like recruiting against coaches that have been just doing this a long time, and um, there was a, there was a coach I remember telling this, you know, this recruit, Hey, are you, you're going to like go, this guy never coached anyone before you're going to go there. And I remember being like, how can I even, how can I even get mad? Like it's true. It's just, I, you know, and, um, yeah, that, that was, that was hard. And I think I just, I think, you know, the places I, I really grew or I, I just over, I just overcompensated with thinking I had to plan everything out and, and the, the amount of work I would put into, you know, just over planning. It's just a way to feel like you're safe and secure. And, uh, yeah, I, that's how you learn, you know? And when I, whenever I see somebody, it's funny. I remember, um, Joe Franklin, who's the New Mexico coach. I was still working with some things in Flagstaff my first year at Georgetown. And I remember this Japanese team that I had worked with Japanese marathoners that would come to Altu. They wanted to go to Albuquerque. And so I'm a couple months into Georgetown and this Japanese, Japanese marathoners are calling me about a track in Albuquerque. And so I called Joe Franklin, who was working there, and he said, yeah, you can use the track. And he said, hey, wait a second, man. Are you two months into college coaching? And we were on the phone. And I said, yeah. And he just talked to me for the next, like, hour. And it was – he was, like, so kind. And he just understood and was like, man, you know, this is really hard and what you're in right now. And all these people want to see you fail and uh, – I don't know. I'll never forget, you know, the kindness of just spotting somebody in that moment. And, so I, and I try to do that now when I see somebody either just taking over a program or starting off in coaching of just remembering how hard that is and that you instantly become like, you know, you can feel really isolated and alone. So that was a tough, tough time. How did you get yourself out of that cycle of over planning? Yeah, the, the the reason for all that over planning and, you know, my race plans would be so intricate and my training was so intricate and all that was just overcompensation, just not trusting myself. It was like just thinking that I had to like out, you know, outwork it. And so I just, you know, you ease into the waters over time and you begin to realize like, okay, I'm, you know, 
these coaches are all just, you know, they're just people like me. And there's, you know, they may act like they're not scared of anything and they got it all together. And, you know, but they're, you know, they're working with the same stuff and just, just begin seeing myself, you know, that I could, that I can handle it. And, um, and also I thought a really, kind of quickly, I, I saw that maybe it was a good thing. I wasn't from this NCAA system and that I, it wasn't just this loop. And, and I try to keep that with me of just like yeah. being, being stuck in that, you know, if you surveyed like NCAA training, it's like 99%, not 99, 90% same. It's like, you know, wow, you guys work out on Tuesdays and you do a long run every seven days and everyone runs this. I mean, it's just like, every, it's, you know, it's a lot of the same stuff. And so for just from being outside of that, I maybe started seeing something I thought was a disadvantage actually as an advantage. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that in my own life, especially when it relates to coaching, because like you, I don't have a sports science background and I didn't study physiology in school. I majored in philosophy and psychology, and that's where I come in from. And like you, I mean, I didn't have a mentor like Jack Daniels, but I've read everything I can get my hands on and, you know, learned how the body responds to different types of stress and have a very fundamental understanding of it. But I think not coming up through a certain system or having these preconceived notions of how things should be allows you to think a little bit more outside the box and allows you to ask that question of what is the problem that we're trying to solve and how many different ways can we look at it? And then being okay and having the confidence or developing the confidence to try stuff uh, and see if it actually, you know, see if it actually works. I think there are a lot of coaches who are afraid to take that step and taking it outside of coaching. I think there are a lot of people in various areas of their life who are afraid to take that step. Uh, Well, well said, Mario. Well said. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that's, shoot, it takes, it takes practice. And it's like, it's like climbing a tree. You put your weight on the branch and it's okay. Trust it. This can hold my weight. And then you go again. And I I just think those are the steps you take, but it, man, certainly, it certainly doesn't come easy. You mentioned Pat Henner and his influence on you and how coaches like you and Milt and others who are in collegiate system have used his framework or his formula to develop their own. How would you describe Pat Henner's formula or the framework that he introduced to you? Yep. There's, um, there was, I think an original, um, foundation of just, um, what the priorities were in preparing an athlete. And, um, we were, going to have a a strength focus, whether that was for an 800 meter runner up through a distance runner, that the foundation of what we do, the backbone of what we do is going to make sure that we had transferable strength to whatever event we were preparing for. And so, you know, you were not let off the hook as a miler from doing uh, aerobic training and um, great accountability to those kind of initial principles. Um, There was a big, uh, big foundation of um, keeping max speed in year round and um, making sure that you were never, you know, too far away from um, from sprinting. And so that was a, um, a piece. The sketch of how we structured a week, um, where we inserted the lifting, where we inserted the drills, you know, that. I mean, literally to this day is I, the, one of the formula I use at NAU is, um, you know, is path layout of a, of a seven day schedule. And I think Milt would say the same thing. And so, um, yeah, just some big foundational, um, big foundational pieces. And then, um, 
some huge aspects of the interpersonal requirements of how you work together with people and the great accountability uh, that uh, was required. And also just what it meant to be a good teammate, what it meant to be, this is something I work with, you know, a lot on our team, but being a great teammate isn't just agreeing all the time or just, you know, um, liking someone's photos isn't a gr- being a great teammate. You know, sometimes actually being the great teammate is saying the things that no one else will say and showing up in ways that no one else um, will will show up. And we can spot those places where, um, yeah, in sport where there's something that, you know, transcends teammate, that there's some something that is just, you know, I think watching the watching Ben Rosario's athletes at the trials, um, Alphine, Kellen and Steph, if you see a photo of those three, their embrace, it's, you know, if you ask those three, are there times they got on each other's nerves? Are there times that, you know, are there are things that annoy them, are there things that frustrate them. No doubt, certainly. What transcends all that is the the they bear witness to each other's process. That's um, being a teammate, and I I think just sorting out the BS of what we tell people being a teammate is, or what we tell people being a friend is, and getting actually down to, you know, um, showing showing up. When I started teaching in that, um, when I started teaching in that school in DC. When I drove home from the first day, and it was like that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life by far. The first person that called me was 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 Pat Henner, and um, he listened to me, and he just reminded me that I was I've been working to prepare myself for that the whole time. And I don't know, there was uh, yeah, I think a really good teacher you you're gonna understand way later what you were preparing for. So Pat Pat was a big part of that. What do you do now outside of your day-to-day responsibilities as a coach to continue your education or stay sharp within that discipline? Yeah, it's uh, – so I think I think my fear, the stuff that kind of jolts me awake at night is uh, like this, you know, fear of like complacency or fear of like not growing or not getting better or – I'm going to think I got something figured out or I'm going to like think that I'm good at what I do. And, and that thing like just is like, just drives me. And I, um, I think in the NCAA system, just being careful that I don't fall asleep and wake up and realize like, Oh yeah, I'm just, you know, living off this formula that I think works and I'm not, you know, they, these are the workouts that we use every year. And this is the, I, you know, that's that lack of growth is the, you know, is the, is the death of the creative mind and just making sure I stay on my edge and, and not get, not get comfortable. I, I, I need my mind to stay sharp and, um, I just need to be thinking of what's coming and, NCAA is brutal, man. I mean, you got great, great coaches and great teams and you got more programs trying harder than ever. And, you know, um, we've had some success that make us a big target. And, you know, I'm not, I know that, you know, I know people want to see people on top fail. And, um, you know, so we, that's the stuff that keeps me on my edge and and keeps me motivated. And, um, you know, the guys that I, yeah, the men and women that we we serve in in this program 
our commitment to them is that as coaches, we don't become complacent. And so, um, I think, uh, making sure that we're learning outside of this little bubble of track and cross country. So when people say, Oh, what track book should I read? It's like, let's, can we give that a rest? Like it's not track books to read. There's no, I mean, read, sure. Read the track books. Fine. But like, it's, you know, the opportunity for us to learn in so many of these places. And again, when we identify the danger, the threat is that, oh, you think that you have to learn from track coaches and learn from these same resources, these stagnant pools. Uh, when we can identify that as a threat, it motivates us to reach outside of this little bubble and learn from, you know, whether it's other coaches in other sports or it's from business or it's it's just people talking about the subjects that are actually what coaching is about and how you get people to feel differently about themselves and their role with others and face their vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, that's, I think how you get better. I love hearing that because it jives with my own outlook on it and similar response that I give to people who ask me, what should I read to become a better coach? And I'll give them five books and not one of them has anything to do with running. And they're like, wait, what? Uh, And and it's like, well, you know, it's like, yeah, you've got, as we said earlier, like, yeah, you've got to know how to apply training. That just isn't something that falls out of the sky, but it's got to be much more well-rounded than that. And I mean, you look at like the greatest marathoner in the world, Elliot Kipchoge, and you look at the books that he's reading when he's at camp. I mean, I think there was a joke that he had like marathoning for dummies in there, but every single one of them <laughs> was like a business book. Um, you know, some like The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, uh, who is like his favorite writer of all time, who's probably never run a step in his entire life. And it's like the takeaways that you get from that kind of stuff are what are going to make you a better athlete, a better coach, and ultimately a better human being. Uh, yep, that's exactly. I feel to the same way about that. And, you know, I, I think one of the, when I look at an athlete, I, you know, the, the way I see an athlete, it's how they're, how they see themselves, how they feel about themselves, where they are in their lives. That's going to show up on the track way more than the training, right? And the training is only going to be in line with the athlete when those other places are in check. You can maybe fake it and get by for a little while, but ultimately, um, those things are going to reveal themselves more than, you know, your, yeah, the workouts and the mile, whatever, any of that stuff. And so, um, how people are feeling is to me the first part that you have to tackle as an athlete. And then, you know, then you can nerd out on workouts, but to, to, to get that order wrong, I think is you're going to be dumbfounded at the lack of results. Last couple bits here before we wrap up, you've been at Northern Arizona now, the university since 2016 job brought you back there. Is it your dream job? Do you see yourself in Northern Arizona for a long time at this point or is it too early to tell? Yeah, the gratitude I had when I, I received the offer to coach here um, has never worn off. Like it, that was not like something that got, you know, ever became old for me. And I, I wake up, you know, I, this morning I wake up and go, holy shit, I get to I get to be the NAU coach. And how lucky am I and how fortunate am I? And um, I get to live in this amazing community surrounded by wonderful, incredible, caring uh, friends and, and, and yeah, running community. Um, I, 
I get to do the thing I want to do and love to do in the place I love to do it. And there's so many people grinding away in coaching um, to one day get to say that. And, and they're working at places that they know ultimately it's not where they want to be for salaries they don't want. And their family's in a position that, that maybe they're not super excited about. But it's to, you know, to get to one day do it at a place where they really want to be. And there's people living, you know, uh, maybe places they don't want to live and getting to do the profession they want. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I know I'm, I know I'm supremely fortunate and I'm just in, you know, it's an utter privilege to have this, have this position and to uphold the tradition that, you know, came before me here. It's not like I got here and, you know, NAU just took off. I mean, NAU has been a great distance program for decades and, um, you know, it's my job to make sure that, you know, it, it, it stays there. And so I, yeah, I feel really, I feel really fortunate for that. And that, that just never gets old. In addition to your duties at NAU with the teams there, you coach a handful of professional athletes. How do you balance that with your day job? I'm not sure coaching lots of people in the professional level would work with my responsibilities at NAU, but certainly for the right people, um, a small group is, um, yeah, a small group is possible. Um, and again, sort of on that level of just keeping my mind sharp. I think, you know, I also coach a community club that meets on Tuesday nights, team room flag staff. Um, but that realm of people that are doing run walk programs all the way up to, you know, someone trying to make an Olympic team, um, I think is the way that makes my mind flex and problem solve, uh, and doesn't keep me in the same loop. And so I, just as the, it's really good for me to coach a pro and not be confined to class schedules and the NCAA schedule and, different things. Uh, I, you know, that's, that's really good for my mind. It's also really good to work with people who are just happy to move their bodies in healthy ways and to stay kind of close to that, that origin of it. You know, I, I think it all is really interconnected. I agree. Absolutely. I think it mm. provides a lot of perspective to work with a range of athletes and you learn just as much from, those age groupers or the novices as you do from the professional athletes and vice versa, uh, where you can apply some of those lessons to the other end of the spectrum. And I think there are a lot of coaches out there that I've seen and, and talked to who pigeonhole themselves. And it's like, no, I only work yeah. with this type of athlete. I work with, you know, ultra trail runners, or I only work with experienced marathoners. And they mm. almost feel lost when they think about the possibility of taking on someone outside of that realm. And it's like, no, take that take that dive. You're going to learn something and it's actually going to make you a better coach because of it. But there's like that level of, you know, fear, anxiety to step outside of your comfort zone and do something different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, we, I think we are selling ourselves short when we start telling ourselves that there's only a certain level athlete that we, uh, work with. I think there's, there's something I can teach, but there's something I can be taught from, yeah, from anybody. Go hang out with a bunch of uh, middle school cross country kids um, and walk away from that. And you can't tell me that there's not something that they reminded you of uh, that was that you need to keep close. 
How are you handling things right now with your teams? NCAAs was canceled this year. There's a lot of uncertainty as far as what the fall is going to hold. You can't really have group workouts at this time. What are you doing with your teams from a training standpoint? And what are you having them think about right now with an uncertain future ahead of us? Yeah, new territory for all of us. Um, we, you know, first we're just making sure that people are okay and people handle uncertainty in varying degrees. You know, there's like, there's people that are like, yeah, I'm totally fine. What are you talking about? And then there's people that are like, yeah, this is really hard. Not knowing what's coming. And, um, so we, I think the first is just, um, making sure that people are okay. And, and, and our kids here are, are good. They're okay. Um, for the most part, or they're they're in good shape and they're finishing up their semesters. They're managing this pretty well. Um, the training aspect is, you know, initially we got we got competitive athletes, so they're just like anybody. They're pretty they're shook because you're so zeroed in on these days of what's coming. And, and guys that were at the NCAA indoor meet doing their pre-meet on the track and spikes and heard over the PA that their college careers are over. And they, you know, those are, those are tough moments to navigate. There's no, you know, no one thought that that would be one of the options. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I think letting them feel in the perspective of uh, where they are and, and how much they poured into this is important, but we're, I think we're kind of over that initial surge of, okay, like, you know, this is happening and now we're kind of settling in for the, you know, for what appears to be a longer haul. The cool thing in training is the NCAA uh, system is brutal and it almost uh, is harder for people that have more success. You got to be good in October, November, February, March, May, June, um, it is unforgiving. And so what we tell ourselves are the down times or the rest times or the base building times. Um, we tell ourselves those times are sufficient, but they're really governed by the calendar, right? And it's, you know, hey, after indoors, we're going to reset and get ready for a long outdoor season. Well, that ends up being a couple weeks and man, we got to get qualified for regionals. And <laughs> so I think we tell ourselves that we're doing it, but we're, you know, all of a sudden these periods are really, they're not governed by the athlete and the needs of the athlete. They're governed by the calendar. So for once this crazy thing is happening that isn't governed by the calendar, which is, Hey guys, um, what would you do? How, what would training look like? What do you think? What are the hierarchy of needs? If the, race wasn't this thing, this unmoving thing coming for you. And the first thing we see are, okay, well, we got all these workouts in the schedule because of the races and the ceiling to our volume is our intensity. If we remove some of these workouts, the density of workouts or the intensity of workouts, all of a sudden we can, we can run more. Um, and so we got, we just have some kids that are just doing what probably a lot of people do in the summertime of just just running. They're just running a bunch and, um, without the, the limitation to be of the, the limitation of how much they're running, being their workouts. And so all of a sudden they find, Hey, wait a second, if I'm not recovering for this thing, or I'm not stressing out about this thing coming on Friday, 
I can, I can run a little more and I maybe can run a little faster. And so we're playing with that. And, and I hope the big lessons that they're going to take from it, um, are going to be, um, yeah, that relationship with volume and intensity and actually their decision-making is they're going to see is, has been run by the calendar of their entire running careers. Mike, this was great. I've really enjoyed this last hour and a half. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, thanks, Mario. I, it's an honor to honor to be asked. And um, keep up your keep up your great work. Keep representing Central Mass. You do the same. Thank you. <laughs> All right, man. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. My thanks to both Sore Running and The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash themorningshakeout. That's S-O-A-R running.com slash themorningshakeout and enter the prize draw. That is it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, SOAR is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at SOARrunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. The Feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morning shakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morning shakeout. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rockstar team here at The Morning Shakeout. John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 